goes to the window and he's like, Jah, Rastafari. And it was, I'm crying, he's crying. And I'm like, Rah, this thing is real. He's thinking about something in 1959. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Alima Gray, who is a curator at the Museum of London, a public historian, a cultural strategist, <laughs> co-founder of the Young Historian Project, and is currently finishing up Boop, boop. A PhD, oral history project PhD titled Bum Babylon, Rast- the Rastafari movement in Britain at the University of Warwick in the history department. Alima, so great to see you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And to have you on the show. So I met Alima like maybe four years ago mm-hmm. when you were just starting your yeah. PhD. I mean, I had not long started my PhD as well. So it's mm-hmm. so amazing to be sat here with you now. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my God, George has taken such a beautiful picture of you. That wow, is... that's a really nice, yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> she is very beautiful, obviously, but that is a very <laughs> nice you. picture. Thanks. Um, Alima, yeah, and it's so great to sort of have this, have a sort of pre-chat with you and hear all about like what's been happening with the research and where you are now in terms of your thinking. Like, mm-hmm thinking about like how the journey that you've gone on over the past four years do you feel like your mind has changed in terms of like the initial hypothesis of the project oh no good (laughs) good (laughs) no not really I mean it has in terms of I'm thinking through a lot of fields of research that I didn't think I would think through Mm -hmm. like for instance recently I've been really looking into like geography and thinking about like black geographies geography was always a subject that I had avoided because I thought it was sedimentary rocks and volcanoes and that, you know, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about our relationship between like space, place um, and how spaces can often tell stories. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that I didn't really think about before starting the project. But in terms of that actual, I guess, that inner burning passion of like thinking critically about methodology, about who am I writing for? And those kind of questions, it still sits with me. Like, it's funny because I'm at a stage now where I'm looking back at my initial proposal and I'm looking back at, like, my initial notes that you take in your first year and I'm like, rah. Like, it's, there is a thread that has continued, so I'm, mm. I'm, I'm glad to see that. But, yeah, um, yeah, just in terms of thinking about um, how my work relates to other fields of research is something that I didn't really think about. It's so interesting you say that, Alima, in terms of looking back at your notes, because I, I think that there is something really interesting to think about in terms of the actual, when we produce our scholarship or when we write up our research, then the thing that happens alongside of that, and that's our own development as Mm. people as researchers so there is the actual research and there's like that thing alongside of that and that's us and Mm. yeah as you said like the thread is very natural like Mm. when you look back at it yeah definitely and I think as well just the people that you meet along the way Mm. so I've been because it's a predominantly a lot of the sources that I'm using is living history so being able to meet people and if anybody know anything about the community they're hella critical you know (laughs) so even that kind of the critical responses that I have received I say critical but I mean quite largely they're supportive but I've been receiving like things that I wasn't thinking through as well so I think that as well has been interesting to kind of also think about because obviously the project that I'm doing is mainly looking at Britain 
but going to Jamaica and looking at those differences uh, between the movement here and the movement in Jamaica has also been interesting. Which brings me on to our first question. Why the Rastafari movement in Britain? Tell us about how you came oh, wow. to be doing this work. I know it's a big one because it's so central to mm, who you are as a person, is, who you are as a historian. But yeah. for the listeners that don't know you. Yeah, so I always kind of look at, recently I've been thinking of my work less about, so I met this guy, this elder in Jamaica, and he was like, Rasta no deal with research, we deal with life search, you know? Or eye search, so you have to start with the eye. So I... I've been realizing that as I'm coming towards, not the end, but this kind of final moment of the PhD that is really a life search project that I'm dealing with. Because a lot of these stories are so rooted in my own relationship to the world, my own coming here and being here. So I was born in Jamaica. My parents are Rastafari. I grew up in a very rural Portland, Jamaica. Big up. Um, <laughs> so in the mountains. But my dad is what you would say British, right? So he was born here. And his grandmother was was Scottish. So he was born in a mixed heritage household. And being born in the 50s, you kind of know the story of his mom being like threatened and all of this kind of stuff. And being kind of, you know, lost. My dad left Britain in the 70s, lived up Rastafari, fled to the hills of Jamaica, married my mom and had seven kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so my dad always had this hatred for Britain, you know? My mom, who was born in Jamaica and was very much like, we want to go England. <laughs> like, the kids, them need education and all this kind of stuff. My dad was always like, you don't want to go there. Trust me. Like, I left in the 70s and I don't ever want to see that place again, what it did to me, you know. Um, so I was always hearing those stories growing up. And my, my, my relationship with England and with Britain was always one of ambivalence. You know, most migrants are, you know, when you look at the narratives of Windrush, there's this coming to build up the motherland. But I had always been a little bit like listening to my father's stories and listening to the stories that Rasta talk about, Bond the Queen and Bond bon all of this, every minute they're my Bond things. So I was always kind of just immersed in this role of thinking critically about England. And then arriving here and coming here and being here, I, I came when I was like eight, nine, so... I'm British-ish, even that, like, my relationship with being British is all... I, I don't know if I've reached a point in my life where I can be, like, I'm black British. And even in my work, I'd never say British Rastafari. I always say Rastafari in Britain because I, I, I do think there's a difference there. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I, I think this work has come as a personal project of feeling like the main, I guess, for me, coming here and then coming from a rural setting, and that's where the geography comes in. So coming from the mountains and drinking river water and all of that, and then coming to the city, and then also being a young girl with dreads and going to a school where people's like, what's that on your head? Like, how are you, how are you going to get married? Like, someone asked me that, you know? Um, and Because, <laughs> you know, I have dreadlocks and, you know, I'm a nine-year-old and, you know, whilst most people have the little bubbles and the little slicking hair and so there was always questions around my identity growing up in England and being, like, just a bit weird, like, you're a vegetarian and, oh, God forbid you're a vegetarian and the teacher's coming down and saying, we're worried about Alima, she's not eating meat and... It was just always like my identity was always put into question being in this country. And I saw, and then I decided because the, the emphasis that Rasta put on history um, to legitimize our identity, to look into the past, to question, to, the, in, the, to question the past, but also to think about our futures as black people. 
I was always, history was always something that I was always thinking through growing up. So I decided to study history and I went to Royal Holloway uh, University of London. And that was a horrible experience for me because like most people, most black historians in this country, um, from the outset, I was just disillusioned by the, the curriculum, right? And a lot of these conversations is conversations that people are having now. Luckily, I had a black teacher in my secondary school, which I think had kind of opened the gates for me to kind of go and study history. But I'm, I'm sure if I didn't have that black teacher, I probably wouldn't have went to do history in my degree. So I was, I was doing a degree and I was like, damn, like, I'm not seeing myself. I'm not... And it was it was a curriculum thing, but it was also just visually as well, being in the classroom as the only black person. And Ra Holloway is a very, I feel like it's different from when you go to, uh, you know, uh, a city university, Birmingham. Yeah, it's Russell Group. Yeah, yeah. Ra Holloway was just weird. Yeah. It was just, it wasn't a city. It was just weird. It's Egham. Egham, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So Egham. it was... I f- <laughs> I found it really, really, like, I had a really difficult time there. And I think it was only, I remember calling my mother, and I remember being, like, in my final year, and I remember being, like, Mommy, you know, so I can't manage this, I can't manage this place. Like, I, I, spent, I spent the first two years learning about all types of stuff that just wasn't relating to me. And then also just socially, like, how I was being socialised in that place was just weird. You know, technically, I'm working class, I guess, if you want to call it. I'm black. Then me have this bag of locks by my head. Then it's like, I'm not really a hippie, but I'm, I don't really, t- like, you know, so mm. I didn't, I couldn't situate myself, basically. And I remember calling my mother and I was like, mommy, you know, this, this something, it ain't for me. Mm. And my mum was like, Lima, what the Ross? Sorry, can I say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> She was like, Lima, what the like, around here, if you born Babylon, man, oh yeah, I get so caught up in a Britain, like, oh, me not do this, I ain't got money, da da da, this person's going south of France. Mum was like, you need to burn Babylon. Like, fuck them. Like, mm. you, why are you getting caught up in all these mm. isms and schisms? And I was like, right, yeah, burn Babylon. So that for me, which is the title of my PhD, is almost like a coping mechanism for me to kind of work through the academy, but also work through how I'm situated within this country. And I guess, yeah, that critical kind of dimension of my work I'm always going back to all right even now when I'm writing I'm like okay I'm getting lost in I'm getting lost but on Babylon so it's just it's just like a coping mechanism for me so when my mom was saying that then I was like all right cool I'm gonna start looking about my coming here and being here what does it mean to be Rasta in this country how is that different so my last my project in my final year was looking at repatriation and uh, Rastafari in Britain going back to Africa and what that means and homelessness and home and Zion and all of that kind of stuff. And I went to Ethiopia and I did a little research. Did you? Yeah, there. Sick. yeah. Wow. So, so yeah, so I think that's when I realised that actually Bon Babylon is a life search. It's a way of life. And a way of life. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a way of life. And, and that's what really kind of made me realise that there's so much gaps within the knowledge, a lot of people know about Rasta. As you say, any conversation that I have with people, they're like, oh, my uncle was, you know, like, oh, my, my dad's friend was like, everybody know about Rasta, Bob Marley and all of that kind of stuff, but people don't really know about Rasta. No, they don't. You see what I mean? What is Rastafarianism? <sighs> so if you can give us like a brief historical yeah. overview, like if you can give a kind of a brief overview to get people understanding yeah. what it is. For me, Rastafari, I guess you have... You have three dimensions of Rastafari. So, I mean, yeah, you have three dimensions, I would say. You have 
the the movement, which is kind of like the political consciousness mm. of Rastafari and like the organizational responses, as you see in the Ethiopian World Federation and just like re- reparations movement and that kind of political engagement. Then you have the liberty, um, which is more about, I guess, liberty. How do we describe liberty? Liberty would be more kind of like, yeah, the way of life, I guess, like the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And that lifestyle is rooted in, you know, our relationship with the environment, our relationship with the natural world, our relationship with ourself and the Most High and however you want to interpret the Most High, whether it's Jarrett Rastafari, whether it's Jesus Christ. So the liberty is kind of like being at oneness with, with your with yourself, like f- fulfilling your truth, whatever that means. And then you have the culture and the culture is what people kind of, I guess, highlight. The culture is what is sexy for a lot of people. Is the dreadlocks, is the reggae, is the is that kind of revolutionary fire. So for me, those are the three themes, I would say, of Rastafari. It's essentially a socio-political, religious movement one man um, that I was interviewing described it as a slave rebellion that continued into the 21st century. And I thought that was interesting because a huge thing with Rastafari is a relationship with history, is a relationship with looking into the past, um, grappling with the past, but re- trying to establish a new human, if you want to call it. So, so yeah, we can talk about the Bible, but we're not going to talk about the Bible. Yeah, but yeah. obviously there's, there's, there's also kind of rooted in His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie, who was the emperor of Ethiopia, but also has links to the Solomonic line. So mm-hmm. that whole kind of vision of being in Jamaica where the movement started and looking at a black king during the kind of upswell of Af- um, scramble for Africa was a powerful symbol of, I guess, the black people's worth in the world as well. So, so yeah, you have the culture, the liberty, and you have the movement. Um, and at the core of that movement is, is Ethiopia, um, and and specifically um, the royal family, um, Haile Selassie and his family. Historically, many people don't think of what, what's the significance of Ethiopia. Like mm. Ethiopia is a place that's not conquered by the Arabs. Right. It, when when the kind of Arabs are conquering North Africa, mm-hmm. it's it remains out of the kind of imperial reach until like World War Two. Mm-hmm. Was it World War Two? Yeah, when Italy invades. So mm-hmm. it's a very unique place in black history. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. But but these things are silences. Unless you go out and hunt and look for these things, you won't know. <laughs> No. And, and so this is this is what kind of yeah. my experience in history was. Yeah. The last thing that people would think of, and that's I guess that's something that I grapple with within my work, is when you think of Rastafari, you think of punks. You know what I mean? You think of hippies. You think of uh, some, the teddy boys and yeah. that whole kind of thing. But you don't think of Pan-Africanism. The last thing you think of is Ethiopia. So uh, what it, why? Why is that? Where is that disconnect? And I think that's something that motivates me in my writing is that I'm situating at such a unique position in a sense that I have this inner lived experience of being Rastafari, specifically as well being a Rastafari woman, which I think is a whole nother bag of something, but I have this experience of being kind of like this outside of from within and said that I know that there's something different there, but that's not being communicated to the wider kind of world in terms of how they understand Rasta and yeah so yeah as a sociologist I think we would encounter a kind of Rastafarian group as a subaltern group right mm. and that's how the analysis would be a, a subculture a sub, yeah. So, mm. subculture. yeah yeah so something yeah. that's underground and oh. and it's it's very kind of niche mm. so it's, it's, it's like teddy boys or mm. skinhead, or skinheads these groups mm. that you want and, and their effect on skinheads so, well, yeah, yeah. That, that's what yeah. that's how really? they would, yeah, oh, they're, they're a subculture yeah. group right yeah. so you'd even how 
we view Rastafarianism retrospectively mm-hmm. is if you look at like programs about race mm-hmm. in London, mm-hmm. the soundtrack is always in the 1970s and it always show Rastafarianism. Soundtracks of um, Bob Marley or right. Sister Nancy, that's mm-hmm. always what they play mm-hmm. when they view the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of association of the 1970s mm-hmm. and the troubles that are incurred in the 1970s with the Rastafarian. Rasta. Yeah. yeah, and I think, and it's probably something like, it's something that I struggle with as well, you know, within my work because... For me, the only stuff that's been written about Rasta in specifically in Britain is by sociologists, white mm-hmm. sociologists. And they created so much misunderstandings with the Rastafari movement that's so deep that it's even made me have such an issue with sociology. Mm. Which uh, sorry, I don't know you guys are both. No, sociolo- listen, we have a very, very complicated, Reli- arguably toxic yeah, yeah. relationship with sociology. It almost loves us and hates but, us and extracts from us and uses us. But, but it's we, part of that project, right? It's yeah, part yeah. of the Imperial project. So right. it's part of that project to extract and study yeah. groups and races and categorize them. And I did my masters in social anthropology at SOAS mm. and I really struggled with that so I moved from history and I I was looking at social anthropology and I really really struggled because there's this idea that I'm this neutral observer in 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 sociology and we could you know neutrality is just violent that Mm. that idea that I can be them I can go and do Mm. ethnography on people and specifically just look at the symbolism of people the characters of people and that was what was happening specifically in the 70s and what you see happening is that Rastafari the first book that was written and the only book actually that was written on the movement here was by Ernest Cashmore and he was a white sociologist in the 70s and he basically went into the communities in Hansworth and 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 worked with the communities you know that 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 was the he idea was using scare quotes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in quotation marks yeah. he worked with them because he wanted to present something new and this was around the same time that there was a report by another white sociologist called shades of gray looking at the inner city and so around this time you have the inner city being problematized as this kind of racialized space as the spaces you know paul gilroy talks a lot about about urban decay and all of this kind of stuff well actually what you find is at the heart of that was this symbol of the Rasta. It wasn't, it was black youth. And I think black youth was kind of like, was positioned as this kind of derelict, kind of a delinquent community. But that symbol was the Rasta. It was a symbol of the dread. It was a symbol of weed smoking. It was a symbol of of of, of teeth in Rasta. One of my chapters is called Selassie, the God of Criminals, because that's, that's, that's essentially what was put forward in these reports. But these reports was working with the community. They were interviewing, they were doing ethnography. But the conclusions that they drew, which is what Ernest Cashmore said, is that the Rasta formed the prototype gang in, in this country and set that kind of gang culture for for it to spread so by the end of the 70s you have the right and, and you see it in a lot of the films Babylon burning an illusion anytime there's crime anytime there's something delinquent here he let's hear a Rasta music and let's hear let's see the Rasta coming in Norman I, I, I was talking about it about um, the recent film Series. What the guy the name? Steve McQueen. I oh, small acts. Yeah. Small acts, and he the first on Mangrove Nine. Like Rasta was a part of that kind of black power movement. Was at the center of that black power movement here in Britain, but they're completely removed. You yeah, see what I mean, I think there was when a, you have representations of Rasta, it is always as a weed seller. Yeah. It is never as a supplementary school founder. It is never as a housing associate founder. It's always as th- there's something sexy with this idea of the rude boy. And 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 that one, it makes uh, the experiences of Rastafari girls and Rastafari women completely yeah. silences yeah. it. But also you lose that historical dimension of coming here and being here. And I think 
a lot of the work within the community is still trying to like disentangle themselves from those uh, yeah. yeah representations the idea of re- to rehabilitate mm-hmm. something like that it, it's it's deeply entrenched and it's reinforced for example how rastafarianism has kind of become an analogy in here over here with mm-hmm. yardi <laughs> right. and yardi is linked to criminality mm-hmm. and that is very hard to rehabilitate to separate it out mm-hmm. and that causes the kind of totality that you're speaking about to be missed. Mm-hmm. All the positive things that we do mm-hmm. are just overlooked. And, but that's a standard thing, right? That yeah. tends to be a standard thing yeah. in Western history. Mm-hmm. I think that one thing that's quite interesting about this, and I agree, these problematic representations have, have clearly been crippling for how we understand um, Rastas and Rastafari more broadly. But I think just sort of on the flip side, like from my own personal experience with, with Rastas and like, my dad wasn't a raster but had but had friends and like just like just in community just thinking about this anecdotally on the flip side for me i've always associated rasters with um love mm-hmm. harmony peace mm-hmm. um knowledge wisdom but even though that's kind of flipped that flips over the representations we're talking about that in itself doesn't allow for a totality of experience mm. and nuances mm. um which i think i think we're talking here about racialization more broadly like mm. what it does to what it does to us as a people and it isn't free it isn't freedom is it mm. but equally like these the problematic stereotypes that we're talking about if you can if you can resist these through representations of love then i do think that there is some power in that maybe mm. yeah definitely because it's a you can disagree with me, then. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't. Know, I think because it's an ism. Wait, but who? Well, what's an ism? Because the way we we kind of spoke about it, it's a kind of package of ideas, right? Right. It's yeah. a it's a it's a lifestyle mm-hmm. as well as it has some religious aspects to it. Mm-hmm. It also has some political aspects to it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a whole bag of ideas mm-hmm. that that finds itself at odds sometimes with the mainstream narrative. Mm-hmm. So or the Western, oh, sorry, Western, Western epistemology. Yeah, Western epistemology. Because so we're, we're trying, because even I think one of the reasons, Alima's like listening to us now, but I think we're doing the thing, we're trying to categorise, aren't we? Right. Maybe? No, no, but, yeah. but, but this is the way, right? So this is just how... Our way. One, one second. One second, one second, one second, one second. This, this tends to be the way when people, when people, when you walk into a room, people, we suss people out, right? We try to put people into groups. Yeah. Now, whether that's right or wrong, mm. this is what the process, the social process that we go through. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to put people into groups. Mm. And I guess this is what happens with that group of people. Mm. When you come, that's the thing that you experience. Mm. People are trying to put you into groups and it's disassociating because you, you don't, mm. you yourself are trying to find a group yourself. Mm. Mm. And so where do you, where do you put yourself? Mm. And this is how we kind of, I guess, we're talking about identity formation. Mm-hmm. Where, do, where do I sit? Mm. Where do I go? And once you come here, do I go back home? Mm-hmm. Do I belong back at home? Mm. Is this home? Is this home? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you ask all those disassociated questions because you're trying to put yourself into groups. I think that's a sociologist thing, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is, though. I yeah, do, yeah, I yeah. do. And I could, that's why I made the point. Of yeah. sort of, so I, I agree with everything you're saying, obviously, T. <laughs> but I kind of realised, like, as we were talking, <laughs> yeah. me and Tiso are doing the thing that effectively Alima's project yeah. is looking to resist. Just, yeah. yeah, and I think specifically, with, that's what I was saying earlier, like the Rastas provide such an important case to be critical of them. Mm. Because the first thing that Rastas would tell you, even me mm. as someone within the tradition, you cannot study Rasta. You just can't. This is what sociologists, even historians, mm. uh, have, have really struggled to grapple with. They try to look for a pattern. They try to mm. look for a category. 
and you cannot with Rasta. Rasta transforms, transcends time, even the way in which they look at time. There's no such concept of time as this thing of being this chronology of events. There's an experience of the past that's constantly in the present. Their idea of time is like cyclical. So we're, uh, we're constantly in conversations with the past, if that makes sense. So even time in terms of how Rashango was saying we are a slave rebellion carried into the 21st century. Our understanding of time is just completely like that, like shaky. It's just, you can't get it. And then you can go into the theology, which we're not going to get into, which is just another mystical thing. There's something that's in the mystics. So I don't, and even me as an academic, and I'm putting that in quotation marks because I'm still not sure about that term, but even me with working within the academy, and trying to finish my PhD and pass my PhD, I'm always trying to be like, oh, how do I bridge this together? Because it cannot be studied. It cannot be studied in the same way as other, as skinheads, as teddy boys, as um, you know, Islam or, or whatever. It's just different. And I think because there is this search to categorize, to look for patterns, mm. it's often meant that the patterns that's coming forward and the symbols that's coming forward is used to in a way to rehabilitate so when sociologists was writing about rasta it was never to write about because historians i guess write about things just for the sake of documentation and looking at the archives and whatever whatever but sociologists is trying to understand and uh and and kind of uh especially because the angle in which they were coming in was to respond to the madness that was happening in the urban city. Mm. So they're trying to look at how to solve that. So Rasta was always being studied as something to be cured. Mm. The dotty Rasta, the, even in Jamaica, mm. you know, this idea of, of we need to rehabilitate these people. And it's the same thing that you say with the Yardies and with the youths, and it's, it's carried in. And I feel like Rasta was the first community in Britain to kind of be at the heart of that. We need a re rehabilitation. So even in the 80s, when the government was throwing Walipa money on the Rastas, it was always done, we need to integrate them. We need to kind of, do you know, do you know what I'm saying? So... Sorry, I'm veering off point. But no, you're not. No, you're not. You're, not. you're doing well. Doing well. No, you're telling us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are literally yeah, telling us yeah, so how I think, it is. It's and this is, yeah, so this is why for me, and it's an impossible endeavor, it's an impossible task to kind of write a history that's balanced or that I, I think in my head, I'm just always thinking about what helps me to work through these categorizations at mm. the academy and, 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 and theory kind of throws on us is to kind of think about whatever I'm writing however I'm interpreting things, needs to be always uh, communing with the community, you know? It needs to be done with, I'm always thinking, yes, I want to pass my PhD and finish this damn thing, but at the same time, I want Rastas, as, as um, a man was telling me, like, I need to write for liberation. I need to write something that Rasta youths can read and can feel a sense of themselves and also move, walk away feeling a little bit liberated. I don't want to say empowered, because I have issues with that word, but yeah, walk away feeling not disillusioned like how I feel when I'm reading Ernest Cashman's work and sociologists that's constantly talking about reggae and man and rude boy and dreadlocks and it, it is it. Don't get me wrong. Mm. It is it. It's it. That is, that is it. But it's not it. Do you see mm -hmm. what I mean? And so I'm trying to look at the not it part so that I can counterbalance the... Yeah. Can we talk? <laughs> Speaking of the... I so see him. He wants... <laughs> he wants to come with a provocation, but I'm, I'm, Alima's having that. No, no, no. I, I think she makes it. Okay, yeah, point, yeah. Coming on to the not it. <laughs> mm. The not it. Mm. Can we include in the not it 
the women mm-hmm. can we talk about the women yeah can, I we, think... can we talk about like what you found in your oral history project about the women I f- you know I, f- I struggle with it I struggle with it a lot because I'm a bit of a dreamer in the sense that I want to make sure that what I'm writing is not harmful to the communities that I'm working with mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of but sometimes that harm comes into contact with reality and the reality is is that you know there's a lot of a, there's a fraught gendered relationship within the Rastafari community and I'm still at a place where I'm trying to work through that. I recognize got a lot of work to do, but I want to kind of find a way to not come in with the categories of gender to understand how women are kind of navigating their space within the movement. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. Like, how can I be critical about the movement, but then at the same time, when my heart is, is trying to write something that can center liberation but I also want to be critical about the gender because some aspects of it is is problematic right what do you think what do you think of this Alima <laughs> what do you think and tell me tell me if I'm being too sociologist right okay the movement is part of society of our society that we live in mm-hmm. our society is built on patriarchal heteronormative mm. cultures traditions histories mm. It makes sense that even a subculture or movement within our society would have these tensions, these fraught, quote unquote, well, we don't want to use gender, Mm. but relationships. Mm. So I would say to you, I guess through my training as a sociologist, that it is it is sad and uncomfortable, but it makes sense Mm. that it would appear. Mm Because yeah. that is because we're Rastafari are not separate from society, mm, and mm. society is mm-hmm. is bound by a lot of these. Continues to be bound by a lot of these principles. That doesn't mean we can't find freedom within it, and mm-hmm. there can't be critical ways of understanding. Anyway, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with you, and probably that's the struggle that I'm I'm having within my work when I'm looking at gender. I was gonna have like a whole chapter on Rastafari woman. And then I was like, yeah, but I don't want to separate it, you know? I want to make sure that when I'm writing, they're integrated within the analysis, not like have one chapter and then boom, that's it, it's complete. So I'm always um, conscious of how am I integrating the stories and the narratives of Sistrins, who's at the forefront of the movement. One of the things that I've found is that in terms of, so I don't, I'm trying to find a language. I don't want to use gender because I think it's just different. I was thinking about looking at womanism and what what that means. Mm. But in terms of if we're going to call it gender dynamics and the experiences of Rastafari women and girls, I'm always keen to kind of include girls Mm because I think the woman something... Sometimes you can just think when when we talk about women, we're always thinking about as the man coming in and make it like there was this idea that it's only true a Rasta man that you can become a Rasta as a woman. But actually, there was a lot of Rasta girls. And I think exploring girls and exploring the Rasta as a child Mm. presents an interesting way to look at joy and to look at innocence and and what that means, because Rastafari has always been positioned as criminals. But anyway, um, so working through gender, I've, I've, I've. found it interesting um uh, a way to kind of work through that to think about balance and this is kind of where the Rastafari womanist movement is kind of arriving at looking at the gendered relationships between as as a balance as rooted in balance as queen amiga um alpha and amiga this kind of um uh, balance this conversation of balance so uh, that's what i'm kind of that's the that's what's shaping how I'm including women's voices in um my 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 analysis is like looking at how 
do they present this realm of of balance but i'm also trying to be I'm also trying to. I don't know. Basically, I don't know. I'm talking, but I don't know. No, no, I think it's really. I think you like ending there on I don't know is so important and it's so crucial to the politics of what Tiso and I do on this show is that it's all about living, being, understanding, working within the unknown mm. as in like we're very comfortable or we try and position ourselves as very comfortable in the unknowing of social life mm. and i think that that's where a lot of academia and scholarship mm. yeah, yeah. goes wrong yeah. like mm. being saying that you know or mm. you understand or overstand you overstand we're all on a journey mm. and i think that that's where what when we're talking about the labels we're talking about the categories like we don't want to be deterministic basically yeah. Mm. even when we think we're 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 making sort of leaps and bounds of in our research mm. like we still want to sit within the unknowing right yeah, yeah. that's so important yeah that's that's really important but i think it's interesting what you said about the idea of like balance mm. and it kind of that raises questions about power mm-hmm. like it kind of disturbs that kind of notion that traditionalized notion of hierarchical power mm. and i think if you can arrive in that if that if Rastafarianism is that thing mm. that kind of creates that kind of horizontal kind yeah, of platform, yeah, where it kind of leveled up power, mm. that's what I'm, I'm down for. That man, mm. that's mm. that's a crazy thing, man. Mm. Yeah, I think that's been a helpful way for me to work through it. But I'm also conscious of of, of writing the reality because a lot of the stories from Sistrins, there is a reality of, for instance, in the 70s, um, a huge challenge was. Is it polygamy? I always forget yeah, yeah, the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A huge challenge was like polygamous <laughs> relationships. Mm. Oh, well, like, that was a huge thing because you have Rastas that's kind of, you know, very much rooted in the African tradition of, of all of that. So how that kind of, how does that, what does that mean now when you're situated not in Africa, you know, you're in Babylon, what does polygamy look like? So that was a huge challenge. And also how to, I guess, how to be this, there's, there's, I guess there's so much limitations, not limitations, I don't want to say limitations, but there's so many things that you're confronted with here. Like, what is it, this idea of the woman in the home and the mother, but then at the same time, Rastaman, them now bring in the money and they are struggling with the police, they're struggling with having a job. So quite often you see that as a woman that's actually bringing in the bread, if you want to say so. How, I'm, I'm also trying to work through how do I document that very real reality of the pains and the struggles of what it means to survive and thrive as a Rasta woman in this country. Um, but doing it in a way that I guess can 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 still center repair, you know, reparative, mm. thinking reparatively. I'm just thinking about um, Leanne Renault that came on the show. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Who work on matrifocality. Yeah, oh, right. So six, 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 I, think, yeah. I think as in what is what could be an art, what could be a way of looking at this. I do think yeah, and Leanne introduced me to this. Um, matrifocality. Matrifocality, yeah, yeah. so Caribbean mothers and other mothers. Yeah, I love it. Kind yeah. of having this matriarchal role that is it's more than it's more than being in charge it's mm. it's it's care it's love but it's strength it's power mm. but all this quote unquote disadvantage of the men in oh, the family men it's mm. it's something more than that mm. um which yeah. i think could possibly speak to some of the things that you're talking about there as well mm. yeah definitely i'm still uh, when i first heard the term 
it was in Leanne's work or was it somewhere else? I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking about, I, what was I writing about? I was writing about the riots and I was writing about the victims of, of the riots in the 80s, black women, mm. and how, what that figure of a mother and, and what that means. I think the challenge for me with matrifocality and even the way I'm working through gender is that there's this thing of, and I don't know. I don't know. But don't, I don't know if you can include this go in the show. Because this is just my personal yeah, yeah, opinion. Yeah, no, right? it's, I don't know. this is all our opinions all yeah, yeah, yeah. the time. This is our show built on mine and T's opinions. I don't... I feel like, and, I, I, and I'll be interested to hear how you guys feel, but I feel like every time we talk about black woman, right, there's this fine, fine tension between... You hear black men say it a lot of, why my mum, what my mum did and... Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a, my mom. I'm gonna build my mom a house, and my mom did this, and she worked hard, and she, my dad went there, and she worked hard, and she had to do this, and my mom, my mom. And I feel like every time that we speak about black women, it can never just be. It can never just like black women can just be. They have to be. They have to come with like contributes, like doing something. What are they doing? I feel like the. I don't know. I'm still at a place where I'm trying no, to work no, through no, that. You I see what you, I mean? But Aliba, I feel like black I, women are always kind of positioned almost like as as mules almost mm-hmm. you know what I mean like mm-hmm. f- feeling less or even when you're talking about feeling less it's always this giving it's always mm-hmm. rooted in giving care or or, or, or. so I don't know I no think, I hear you, you and I think no I totally agree and it's something that I have been trying to think through myself um in my own scholarship but also like talking to other black women about this I think that um I think thinking about scholars like Sylvia Winter help with this, but to what extent are we able to access the category of the human? And it is, it is far. It but is far. You know, imagine, like, but it's built on those tropes, right? So yeah. as, a, as a young black man, I, I parroted myself, right? Mm. So the reality, your reality, so I live with my I live with my mum, mm. and so she became the kind of put on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. So she's doing everything. Mm. And then your mum, your mom, grand, my your mom, aunties, and, but, other mothers. But, there, but there's absent fathers, right? Mm-hmm. But, we're, but, we're, but we're looking at it through a kind of a Eurocentric view, the concept. So it's an absent father. He's a bad guy. He's doing this. My mum does everything. Mm. And it, it becomes verified. This whole speech becomes verified. And so it's, it becomes impossible to speak about black women mm-hmm. in the way that you sort of discuss. Mm. Yeah. She, she, they're discussed as almost like a Swiss army knife. They do yeah. everything. Yeah. But it's, yeah, a, it's, 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 it's a tool, right? Do you think that, to be fair on matrifocality, I think it's about pushing back against that the Eurocentric yeah, exactly. notions of the yeah. black family? The, the, it's yeah. to be resistant of mm. that kind it's, of. It's to push yeah. back against it, but yeah. but but it's it, but, but, think, but for lots of young black men, it's impossible to find that language to speak mm-hmm. about. Given that's all your kind, it's reinforced through popular culture, right? Mm. So what's the cop in every drill video? All the all the boys come from a dysfunctional home, mm. which is the the dad's not there. But even though, but this is this is not a real. This is a myth, right? Yeah. But this is presented as reality now. Mm. I think that I spoke about this in a talk the other week, but um, made me think about what Alima just said. Mm. You know that quote I read, I showed you in Uncut Funk, the conversation between Stuart Hall and Bell Hooks. Yeah, yeah. And Bell Hooks talks about black women in Britain being invisible and mm. um, enduring the 1970s femi- feminist movement, mm. and actually they were there. And Stuart Hall says. Um, we love Stuart Hall, but um, Stuart Hall says, "Oh, black women weren't really around like that." Oh wow! Um, <laughs> it's in it's in uncut funk. Um, we love Stuart Hall, but that is just wrong <laughs> and not true. Um, but what that made me that just coming back to that quote again, and it's just it sticks. I think about it like every day at the moment. And big up Malcolm Richards for sending me um, the conversation. Mm. But um, what Alimia said about 
how we portray black women mm. or not or or how they're positioned and how we talk about black women it's like this constant battle between hyper visibility and invisibility yeah so like okay we're going to be like the Swiss army knife. <laughs> and then at the same time, the men are saying we're not around doing anything. Yes. It's like this, like it's mm. just this, this tension that is so like, so hard to, to think about in terms of our, in terms of our elders, mm. but also in the contemporary as well. Like, mm. how do we stop? Like, no, I, I, I don't think you would do this too, but how do we stop our, our brothers <laughs> saying, oh, well, back in the 2020s, black women weren't really talking like that about about the movement. No, <laughs> unfortunately, it, it's it's a compounding of like the popular culture, right? Yeah. And how we see how we talk about the politics of representation, how we are choosing to represent ourselves in certain mediums, right? Mm. So in, for example, the most popular one, hip hop and drill music, how they represent young black males and urban uh, and urban strife and the, mm. the woman again where are they the female drill artists but mm. they, they're not really represented right no. they're not really kind of out there so mm. this again it talks about that hyper invisibility mm. we, they're there but they're mm. not there mm. what would what would rastafari teach us about this anima about drill music no no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no about this. sorry 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 Real, about, about this existential question of invisibility of womanhood of i don't know you know yeah i don't know i really don't know i think um i think they have their rastafari they um i guess they've created their own systems of knowledge and Mm -hmm. how to how to relate themselves to the world so i think the first point they would always opt out of even though they are part of it as you said but in their heads you know in our heads we're like we're not part of this we're kind of part of a different different world that's striving to be this new human so i think initially they they they, the role of the the rasta woman was always under this queen you know the idea of the queen which is kind of you know so we know the the tepism around that and and all of that (laughs) kind of stuff which but that idea of the queen of putting them on this pedestal and the the thing that um rastas always say is that when his when haile selassie was crowned he was crowned with the queen and so that has been used as a way to reinsert women. But, and I think that's the word that I'm kind of looking at within my work and within how I'm seeing gender, how I'm seeing Rasta more broadly, how I'm seeing black history in Britain. It's kind of how can we reinsert their narrative into, into the picture? Um, how can we, Alima? Or how are you? <laughs> how are you? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I think how I'm doing it, I'm thinking about more critically about methodology. the methodology of my work um i'm thinking critically about voices and how i'm using their voices and also thinking critically about being open and transparent in my own positionality and situationship history i always i think what sociologists do very very well is they they kind of outright kind of talk about that how they're situated there's like auto ethnography and i think they kind of really really got that down historians they haven't really they they document the past yeah, they and they kind of remove themselves whenever you from, go to like conferences and stuff and i question historians they're like i'm above telling you yeah, about my life i'm yeah. like no i want to know how have they, you got to study in yeah, black people right. white lady I think, <laughs> <What happened? laughs> 
what happened it's fine I don't mind yeah. if there's a, I don't mind if there's not necessarily a deep story but yeah. I want to know, want to know right? why but that's not yeah. how you're taught right that's not the methodology of history no it's not the tradition yeah. It's, yeah, it's, the, to take, it's to take yourself out of it yeah. and try to let, analyse events as they happen yeah. as they've happened sorry and what's really what's really interesting is so my methodology is opting out of that historical methodology mm. that tells you that there's a scholarly apparatus and history should be seen as a science and objectivity and all of that and truth and whatever that means. And what's funny is that when I initially applied for a scholarship, at, I think there was a scholarship at UCL and his scholarship literally was about Rasta. Yeah. I mean, I never said it was Rasta, but I it was, remember you remember me. Yeah. yeah, maybe I was speaking to you at the time. I don't know, but UCL five years ago or something, they had a scholarship. I went to a white person in there. Yeah, they had a scholarship about that was looking at like Rasta. No, it wasn't looking at Rasta, but obviously in my head I, I saw Rasta. Yeah, yeah. It's looking at the British Caribbean experience mm. and looking at reggae music and it. Yeah, yeah. And you had to put in a proposal. Anyway, cut long story short, I got an interview and it was me. It was out of two people, me and another girl, yeah. right? And I was like, I have it. Yeah. I got it. I was already spending the money. Yeah. <laughs> That's me. That's me. That's me. <laughs> Yo, when I tell you I was calling up my mother and my father, I was like, mm. yeah, I could be doctor. Yeah. And you know what they said to me? I didn't get it. I didn't I remember, get it. I saw you just after. Maybe. You hadn't maybe. got it. Yeah. It's disgrace. Yeah, I didn't get it. And do you know why I didn't get it? Go on. They said, and I don't want to call out names, yeah. right? But they said my methodology wasn't strong enough. And now here he, here he, yeah. at Warwick University. What gave me the scholarship at Warwick University? Because it was a black woman, really, that mm. opened the gates for me. Mm. And I give thanks for that. But it was my methodology. Why do people want to talk to me right now? Because of my methodology. Or not necessarily my methodology, but my search for something else, right? But five years ago, they told me, say, my methodology wasn't rigorous. Why wasn't it rigorous? Because I don't want to talk about... Hegel and 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 all the shit that you've been teaching in Hammersley school. Hammersley and Atkinson. Yeah, like is <laughs> no that disrespect. Why? Hammersley wanna... and Atkinson, but you know it's the first one. Yeah, because I don't want to talk about, about. Eric, Eric Hobsbawm and yeah. and Chronicles and Romans and all of this. Why? Because they asked me that in my interview, and I was just like, Did they ask you relevant. why are you using Eric Hobsbawm? No. In your interview? I can't remember what they asked me. They asked me about how am I engage it. Like, what's my like? What's your some, engagement with, yeah. with with the canon? Right. Right. What's my engagement? I said, I'm not. I ain't engaging. Like, no. <laughs> Right, so it's right, such a so, so what, right, so when I got my degree, I actually met Eric Hobsbawm because he's. Like, you, yeah, he, is yeah. A, he is a G to be he's, fair. He's a, he's a G, right? R.I.P. R.I.P. Right. Yeah, yeah. But can you see the the problem? The problem when you kind of move in a kind of Eurocentric way is there's categories, right? Mm. And it makes people it, it makes people feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. when you're not. When you, if you say you're sitting in a discipline, mm. like we have this problem on the show, mm. right? When people hear and we're talking different disciplines and we don't we don't talk. We're all in academia, but we don't talk to each other because you can't be cross-disciplined. Mm. Where a, a historian crossed with a sociologist, crossed with a geographer, that would be sick, right? Yeah. That would be amazing. Which is technically this route. Yeah, which would be sick. Yeah. But yeah. because we all sit in different silos, mm. it makes people feel uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. there'll be questions around the rigour of your methodology mm-hmm. because you're not following established patterns mm-hmm. in that discipline. Mm. That's exactly what they said. But that's what when I asked it. for feedback, they was like, it wasn't, and that word rigor. What the hell does rigor for who? Yeah, for them, right? <laughs> but then, do you know what's really interesting about this though? And we talk about we uh, we talk about this quite a lot with leading roots work as well mm. in terms of talking to the academy about how they expand what academic quote unquote academic excellence is. 
research or our research communities need to be inclusive in order to be to satisfy their Mm -hmm. quote-unquote rigor or Mm. to be rigorous Mm. to to exclude what alima is saying and how she is doing her work as something which isn't rigorous to me shows a clear dysfunction with how academic scholarship forms itself like Mm. you are if you're creating boundaries around it that means you're not being you're not creating inclusive research but you know know, i'm gonna say and this is quite controversial i would argue if you were of a different race Mm. from a different social class and you Mm. came with something novel and new that would have been acceptable Mm. like but because mm. of who you are mm. and you present something novel and new, yeah. it's seen as... That's true. It's about respect- yeah. respectability as well. Mm, so there's there's the, yeah, Rasta, <laughs> working class, black woman coming in, Listen, giving you every... like. Are you, are you even English? Were you born here? Are you even English? Tell you how it is. If it was... No, you're right. That's it's, oh, it's, 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 it's not controversial. It's, hard, it's a hard reality. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a hard, a hard reality. That really has set me back when yeah. I got that rejection. Because oh. that was after a long time of being rejected. And I finally arrived at the point where I was like, it's me, Otana, that person. I have a 50% chance. I got this on lock. I've been here. I'm, I'm here for this right now. Mm. This is my time to shine it. Told me I wasn't rigorous. Listen, I know After that, that feeling, I bought my ticket. <laughs> oh, it's like I went to Jamaica for a year and I was just oh, like sitting yeah. by the river, like born in Babylon. I'm like, this place ain't for me. And it's your dad, like, I told you. I told, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, that's 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 how it is. But I, there's also another flip side of that, and mm. it's something that I'm also trying to work through when I was documenting these oral histories. Because one woman that I was interviewing in Birmingham, I went to Birmingham, I went to her house, like. And she was saying, she said to me, she thought I was writing a book for myself. I don't think she realized I was within the academy. Yeah. And at the end of the interview, um, uh, the the oral history, I was like, oh, give thanks. And, uh, you know, you're wrapping yeah. it up. And she was like, oh, so when's your book going to be ready? You know? And I was like, oh, no, it's a, it's a PhD. And yeah. she was like, oh, no, sister. And she was like, no. Be careful. They might use you as spy. Yeah, they're gangsters. <laughs> they are. She's right. Yeah. She's she right. Like, they're gangsters. No, trad good, sis. I don't want to be included in the thing because mind how they use you as a spy because you know these places ain't for us. And when mm. I tell you my train ride home, I was like, what am I doing here? Mm. Like, how can I? Yeah, what does it mean to be working within this academy, taking people's stories and putting it out there and then, am I the spy? Am I the earnest Cashmore now? Do you see what I mean? So, yeah. I- <laughs> <laughs> Eva, this is this is deep. But can I just say, will she allow you to use that method, that anecdote method? Of- I don't even. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. like, I mean, is that see, that's is that me being a spy? Because that is so in, like yeah. that in itself is so interesting. Yeah. But is that me being Eric as well? Like the fact that she doesn't want to be yeah. included to me is a really interesting yeah. part. But no, but, but this of the is project. the question we have to ask ourselves as researchers, right? So before we used to get upset with be, us being studied, but mm. are we okay with study, us being the kind of researchers studying yeah. our own community? It's the same questions we have to ask ourselves. We can still, yeah, as we, Mel Hook says, we can still perpetuate harm just because yeah. we look like them yeah, we or can, apart. We, right. we have to ask ourselves some of the questions because once it's out there, like even like on a kind of like more anecdotal level, the terms kings and queens you spoke about, look how that's been extracted and put in popular culture. Mm. It's, it, it, it's, it doesn't bear any kind of resemblance to what it truly yeah. means. Yeah. And so we have to be careful what we put out there yeah. when we're researching our own people, yeah. man. For a long time after she told me that, and that's the thing, I pride myself in being critical of myself 
what I'm doing, who I'm doing it for. But even the sister kind of saying to me, kind of tried good sis, like yeah. they're using you as a spy. I was thinking, I, I came home thinking like, what? I shouldn't even be doing this because I don't want to turn into number one the voice for Rasta because I can never be. I don't want to be seen as you represent the black community, and I don't also want to like exotify. Like I don't know, there's this kind of like this this perversion with everything is suddenly ethnography and 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 being so obsessed with like yeah categorization and like I don't know like I. I obviously I'm still it's something that I'm still working through but I remember really having to take at least a month out of writing after she told me that because I wasn't sure about taking these people's stories even the ones who said no I'm happy for you mm. go on sis like do your thing and speaking to my supervisors about it speaking to because for me these are like really personal archives right and how do I they're private I almost feel like I was I write a lot about um uh, Amiga Rising, a film by Sister D, a really, really phenomenal Rasta woman in the 80s as part of the black film movement. And for me, even when I look at that film, I'm like, I want to protect it. Like, I don't want anyone else watching this shit. Like, for me, it's like, so that tension between, like, protecting these stories, but also knowing that I really, really want to counterbalance the fuckery that's been written about it. So it's, it's, I haven't found a place that I'm uh, like... Go on, see. I think that this, but I do think that these kind of conversations we're engaging in, I, I see as a, a really important conversation around reflexivity. Mm. And I think this is what makes us different from the Eric's. We, <laughs> well, those of us that are like us in this room are trying to produce knowledge or talk about particular ways of being in a way that is uncertain, in a way that is not adamant that we know what we're saying in a way that rejects objectivity mm. and if we keep remaining mm. what yet yeah, hannah jones says <laughs> as being uncomfortable or uncomfy <laughs> if we keep saying that mm. we aren't necessarily yeah. talking to the exact truth mm. then perhaps that is what makes yeah. our projects different yeah but the only worry that i have with what? that is people questioning whether we're authoritative that yeah but also which is i feel like i reached a point last year where i was getting too comfortable with just speaking to white people yeah i was yeah, becoming yeah. too comfortable speaking with that academy to a point where i'm going to rastafari circles because i've been i've grown so accustomed yeah. to always talking to the white person right mm -hmm. or even if it's not just when i say the white person i'm talking about that, that kind yeah, of no, you, you, yeah. you see what i mean but but this is the problem about the, with the PhD process, right? Right. Essentially, essentially, you're talking to a group, a select group of people, right. these academics. But I want my PhD to be read by everyone, not mm. by six group of people. But you're having to write in a particular yeah. way yeah. to a particular audience. Yeah. And this is part of that problem. I think, Alima, there are two things here as well. Like, you have to do what Tiso's just said to get the PhD. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, that's the Standard, reality. Right? That's the reality. <laughs> you have to do that. But you can do the other stuff as well. Mm. And I think that that is what we have to do as radical scholars. We have to engage in both. We have to engage, mm. we have to go engage in the first one because we've got to eat, we've got yeah. to pay our bills. <laughs> and we have to engage in the second one because we want to do work that is reparative. Mm. But it's also where we're from, right? Mm. Yeah. So you're talk, your PhD is about where you're from, what, what interests you. Mm. So you're, you have to do that bit. It's, but again, it speaks to that again, that double consciousness again. Mm. You're walking two lives, right? Yeah. And yeah, sometimes you're talking to that that white. Most of the time, like I said, it's jarring, right? Academia is jarring, <laughs> but 
it's the thing that we have to do to exist in that world yeah, in that yeah, real yeah. world mm. and this is that double consciousness that kind of the boy spoke about well yeah man. it's so true that double consciousness it it hits me so like every day is a double consciousness every day every single day is a double i like i think that's probably been the biggest challenge for mm. me in this phd in the world of museums as well like this kind of like like yeah. that you know what i mean like it's the, the kind of like you come home and it's like I have to be. I find myself listening <laughs> to the hardest dancer. I, mm. I don't even yeah. like. I don't even listen to dancer like that. Yeah. But to survive, yeah. when I leave Warwick and when I leave these conferences and when I, leave, I have to put on Skilly Bang and <laughs> you know what I mean to really kind of just just switch it off, switch mm. it off and feel. Because I feel like when you're in these places, they take away the feeling. Yeah. I've recently written about like history and emotions and. I was doing this project with um, University of Bristol and it was like looking at uh, the relationship between history and emotions and therapy and all this. And it was really interesting because they take that out of you, that feeling, you know. So And Bell Hooks talks a lot about it. You know, I want to feel. Uh, that, that's what I want to feel. And academia, I don't feel... <laughs> I guess from a traditional Western point of view, when you look at history, mm. the past is supposed to be dispassionate. You're supposed to be not feel anything about mm. it, right? It was quite contradictory. The one thing they do feel mm. when they talk about the past, the only emotion they want to elicit is pride. Mm, yeah. They don't talk. So, but, but when we talk about our past, mm. especially in relation to the West, we mm. feel emotions of anger, right. hate, upset, and all these things. real thing. It, and I don't think. Sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, no. Come, come, come. I don't think people really, really, really acknowledge that. You know what I mean? And especially when. I've been interviewed. So one interview that I did with an elder in, in um, Bath. And he's an elder. Like, a master in Bath? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's... <laughs> so I, no, but I love, I, love, I love hearing about, well, not love, but I'm interested in black people in white places. As in like, yeah, so yeah. Haile Selassie lived in Bath, in Fairfield House. So mm-hmm. there's like a... Um, Brother Sean um, Sobers, he's at... University of West England. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. he's doing a lot of work. It's called Fairfield House. Oh, he lived yeah, there yeah. during Italy's invasion of Ethiopia. And okay. He lived there for yeah, a while. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, but it's actually a strong Rasta community. <laughs> See, but learn was, something new every day. I was interviewing an elder in Bath and he was, and when I said this elder is like mystical, you know, just full of knowledge, full of grace, amazing kind of, his voice is like a vocal hug. And I remember interviewing him and I always, and I still really do look up to him. And he was kind of like, I was talking about, so what was your entry point into Rastafari? And he was, he started talking about his experiences as a child coming here and, and coming to Bath. And and he said it was so he was so innocent. He was playing football with the white people, everything was nice. He never knew nothing about racism or anything like that. And he said in this was probably in like nineteen fifty nine, he went to the library with his white friends and they were just used to hang out at the library and then he looking at the book and then him see something about slavery and then he see like a an enslaved woman and when he looked at the woman he started thinking about his grandmother that he left back in Jamaica. And as he's reciting the story to me, he starts breaking down and Aww. crying. And he's like, lock off the tape, man. And then he goes to the window and he's like, Rastafari. And it was, I'm crying, he's crying. And I'm like, raw, this thing is real. He's thinking about something in 1959. And he's fooling up of tears, just thinking about him as a little boy. And then realizing like, why them would I do it? Why the mother do mama like that? So there's this idea. Yeah, I think you're right. There's this idea of the history as it's, oh, it's, it's yeah, it, but you, it's, meta- it's no, metaphysical. But it's you, trauma. But you understand in how they speak about. Uh, so, for example, when they speak about black people and reparations, it's in the past. 
It's mm. in the past. <laughs> so you should be cool when it's yeah. in the past. Mm. Not, but not, and like I said, not understanding the history and emotion. There's, there's a link. Mm-hmm. But, but the, time that, is, as, as, as Alima said, like time is constructed is abstract mm. so no but mm. time but time for them is linear yeah. yeah right so it's always going forward yeah not and and so they look and then when they look back at the past they only look back at the past and like i said the only emotion you're meant to feel is a sense of pride mm. we're gonna have to wrap up there yeah, sorry. <laughs> Relax. we were just we were just Relax. getting into it we were just getting yeah. into it that went oh lima lima's sick man thank you lima you're thank amazing you. no, I'm Every, getting into it. everyone needs to everyone needs to just follow Alima. If I had Alima's hair, work. I'd grow dreadlocks, but I ain't got them. Yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Alima, thank you so much for coming no, on the show. Thank you. Listeners, thank, thank you. For you me. Thank you so much for joining us each week. Patrons, there'll be another episode for you over on Patreon now. We'll see you again next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 